Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org where you will find several speaker feeds with over 800 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. The opinions expressed on the Light a Candle podcast are those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Diane. Thank you very much. Hi, my name is Diane. I'm a compulsive overreader, anorexic bulimic. Very grateful to be here. Timer, can you give me five and five and then ten and ten? Um, Okay. Thank you. I uh, welcome, I'm so glad there are newcomers here, not for my sake, but for your sake, because um, I was actually at the birthday party this morning on a panel on gratitude, and I was talking about the very, very first meeting I went to, came to, um, went and came to, and I, um, What I'd like to do is talk a lot about what it's like now. I had 30 years of abstinence last July, and um, I'll tell you how I got here. And I can tell you that when I got here, if somebody had uh, put a sign up on the wall like the one back there that says, life is beautiful, I would have said to hell with that. Life is not beautiful and gone home and eaten because there was nothing beautiful. I didn't think about life when I got here. I came in here because I had a plan to kill myself. I had all the pills. I had no idea how to live. I was almost 30 and I had tried everything I knew of and I was a really good trier. I sat in the front row at school and got A's. I really paid attention to things. I could not figure out how to control my food. I could not figure out how to lose those last 10 pounds. Success everywhere else in my life could not do that. And um, I lived in Montreal at one point, and in 1985, I think, there was an AA worldwide convention there. And I went out with my friends um, to have polite drinks, which is what I did because I can't drink. Um, And I saw all these, seemed like older people, around sitting in all the chairs, in all the bars, inside and outside, laughing, smiling, and I now know that they had that thing in their eyes. And they were having water, and they were having soft drinks. And I said, what is this? And somebody said, oh, that's an AA convention. And I thought it was, you know, rolled my eyes. Oh, how stupid is that? But at some part of me could see that they had something. Like they were enjoying each other's company. I didn't know how to do that. I knew how to obsess about what I'd look like, whether I looked fat, whether I'd had too much to drink, whether he liked me, whether I'd worked hard enough at work, would I get the job, oh my God, I should have worn something else. I had no idea how to just be somewhere. And um, the next year, a girlfriend of mine was uh, claiming that she had to lose weight, which of course I couldn't tell that anybody had to lose weight except me. And she said, well, if I can't lose weight, I'm going to go to that Overeaters Anonymous. And it was like the cartoons, you know, my ears perked up. I didn't say anything, and um, 
I then was transferred to New York and looked in the phone book, and there was a meeting of Overeaters Anonymous at Lenox Hill Hospital on Wednesday, July 8th of 1987. And I went to that meeting, and I didn't understand what was going on. I didn't know why nobody was talking about food and diets. But I went home and I sat on the edge of the bathtub and I cried and cried and cried because I knew something had happened. And I didn't know you were allowed to go more than once a week, but now I know you can go five times a day if you want. So I waited until the next week and in that week in between I had my last binge. And um, the next week, July 14th, 1987, was my first day of abstinence and that's the abstinence I have today. And the reason that beginning is so important to me is because if somebody had told me before I came in that, you know, well, not only are you going to go to that meeting, you're going to go to a meeting every day for the first two years, you're going to go to extra therapy, and you're going to go to psychodrama, and you're going to have a sponsor, and you're going to have sponsors, and you're going to go to conventions, and your life is going to revolve around this. It's like, oh, oh no, I don't think so. That's not for me. But um, this program... For me, it was like drops of water. A little, a little. I got a little, I wanted more. I got a little, I wanted more. I got a little, I felt better. I got a little, and within six months, I was, even at that stage, without having finished the steps, I was a different person. The doctor who was giving me my antidepressants after, when I saw him three months after I come into program and got an abstinence, he literally could not understand what had happened to me. And it was the program. It was that thing that happens in here. Because so much of what I hated about myself and my life and everything else, looking back, I think had a lot to do with I didn't know there was anybody else like me. I didn't know that other people had feelings like I did because I was brought up in a very controlled, polite, polite, polite family. And we didn't have bad feelings. We... um, we always said everything was fine in that classic waspy way. And when I found out that other people talked out loud about being angry, talked out loud about being jealous and envious and all the things that we talk about later on for the newcomers in the fourth step and turnover in our fifth step, those were things that helped me realize that I wasn't alone. And despite all the people I had in my life, nobody knew me. And I remember when I came in thinking that if anybody knew what was inside me, they would hate me. And I didn't even want to look at it. It's that thing that a lot of people talk about is they only sort of saw from here up in the mirror. I don't want to see what I looked like. I didn't want to see what I felt like. I didn't want to know the depth of my anger, judgment, depression, intolerance, and all those other things that I learned to have a look at. What I wanted to do was to feel okay, and I wanted everything to be good. And what that really meant was I wanted everything to go my way. And I learned in this program that I only have to look at things for today, Saturday, January 13th, 2018. And it's kind of funny because... Obviously, I've gotten older in the last 30 years. But now it's kind of like, oh, my God, in five hours I'll be in bed. I'm so excited. (laughs) That, you know, that's the end of my day. I only have to get to that. I only have to get to that. I don't have to even think about tomorrow, which, again, 
you know, before I, before I got into program, everything that other people said that I didn't agree with was just stupid. So what do you mean? You know, where's your five-year tenure? I have graduate degrees. I was supposed to be building one-year, three-year, five, ten, twenty-year lifetime plans. And it didn't work for me because I, I, didn't, I didn't know who I was. I think I had, I didn't even count them. I think I had five different majors over the course of university. I had no idea who I was. And in my case, I, that meant I had no idea what I wanted to do. Other people can plow on through and be fine with it. I couldn't. I was always an explorer. I was always a seeker. And, and I always hated myself because I was never doing enough. I wasn't smart enough. I wasn't pretty enough. I wasn't athletic enough. And, um, I also was thinking about life events and the, in terms of, I, I'm going to use the word trauma with a small t. So I was teased and bullied in whatever you call it here, junior high equivalent elementary school. It hurt, but I got over it and I knew that I was still the same person whether they said that or not. When I was 17, my mother killed herself one day, and that was the first of the big shocks in my life. And um, because we didn't talk about feelings, because it was the 70s, nobody talked about it. So I ate. I had to comfort myself somehow. It's one thing to have your mother die when you're young. It's another thing to have your mother kill herself and have no idea why or what happened or whether I'd done something. And it must have been my fault if I'd been paying more attention and tried harder and called more or whatever you did when you were at college. Whatever it was, I didn't do it right. I didn't save her. And that obsessed me. I can't. It's interesting because the good thing about getting older is you kind of forget the intensity. I do anyway of some of my younger feelings. But I was obsessed with that all day, every day. I forget spending a day not thinking about it. I didn't never spent an hour not thinking about it. And I don't, I suspect it goes back further than that, but one of the things I've been talking about to my sponsor and other people in recovery is, I hear about, I always think of artists or musicians who get lost in their work. I hear people say, oh my God, the hours went by, I got lost in my work. Well, first, I never got lost in my work because of food, because there was always time to eat. And, but second of all, I don't think I could ever let go enough to get lost in my work. I never didn't know what time it was. And, um, you know, that was a real eye-opener for me, that a lot of this program had to do with letting go. And in, in AA, they talk about the program, the 12-step program, being able to be distilled down into love and service. The old-timers talk about that. For me, my OA program has really become about acceptance and service, because I realized there was so much about my life that I did not accept I struggled against everything from my hair color, my eye color, my height, my, my, you know, seriously, long arms, long legs, you know, not being a great athlete, um, not being able to read fast, which I still have as an issue. And it's kind of funny, my grandson, who of course is a genius, step-grandson, was reading when he was one. He read Moby Dick in an afternoon. I started, I'm not kidding, and retained it and did a report on it. I'm actually not kidding. I started Moby Dick last June. 
and I am 31% of the way through. I'm quite proud to say because at least I'm, I'm not giving up. You know, it's like in my old age here, when I turned 50, I said, I'm going to read a classic a year. And because of this program, I can actually focus on it enough to read. I don't know about you guys, but before program, I didn't read much because I couldn't hold on to anything. And when I got in here, um, I'm holding up an OA 12 and 12, which is the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions, written especially for people in Overeaters Anonymous. This did not exist when I came in. We all worked off the AA literature, the AA Big Book, of course, which we still have, but the AA 12 and 12, which I still love because that's how I came in. And even though we didn't have our own literature in that sense in, in those days, we had a program. And we had a program that worked. And it turns out to actually be fairly incidental that we have our own literature because 90% of it is so much the same. And um, it took me six months to get a sponsor. If you're new, I suggest you get phone numbers at least. Um, I was too afraid to ask anybody to sponsor me for fear they would say no, so I didn't ask. But I did get phone numbers. I did... An old-timer said, go to regular meetings regularly. And I thought, well, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard this week. And he meant go to the same meetings every week so that people get to know you instead of I'll go to this one this weekend, that one that week. And now I say, of course, now I say the same thing to my sponsees. Find a couple meetings and go to them over and over and over again. Because I say to them that the goal of this program is to be known, which I didn't want to have happen. But, in fact, that's where the recovery is. The recovery is in people knowing us, allowing them to know us. Coming from a place of when I first came in here, I didn't want anyone to know anything about me. You know, now I think if, if I had a down coat on with a zipper, it's like, here I am, unzipping the coat, here I am. Here is my, you know, judgment, intolerance, impatience you know, imperfections, I'm doing the best I can, I've got God in my life, I'm working a program, I do my best to make amends, here's who I am. And that's what the program has given me, is an ability to, to look at myself. And I was thinking about life on life's terms. And I ate over everything because things did not go the way I thought they should. And... I also realized the genius of the human mind and the human perception because I used to say to my therapist, could I please, I used to beg to be put in a mental institution. That's how crazy I felt. And I really did. And I was depressed on top of it and tried to kill myself. So I used to beg to go in a mental institution and be, and I said, could I please go in a mental institution for three months and get fixed and come back out? And she said, if you came out what you call fixed, you wouldn't be able to function. You can only learn to change a little bit at a time because otherwise you won't be able to tolerate it and you won't be able to live in the world. And that was so profound to me because it helped me accept, again, that, that this program is brilliant and uh, a miracle. But it also helped me to accept that, okay, today I can try and do it a little bit better than yesterday. And next month, it'll, I can look back on this. And when I look back on those years now, I never would have believed when I came in, somebody said, you'll be living in L.A. and you'll be married and you'll have 30 years. It's like, mm, that's not me. I don't like L.A. Um, but, you know, that's where life brought me. And um, this is L.A., for those of you listening. 
and um, it has the most amazing program. And if any of you out there listening are coming, please come to LA and come to meetings. They're all the time, everywhere, and you're more than welcome. And that's one of the things I discovered here. There's great program. There's great sponsors. The birthday parties here every year. And I was thinking about how I tried to keep everything like a lake that never got uh, wavy. Ten left? Um, so I was thinking about the last couple of years. The first obviously giant trauma that I talked about was my mother's suicide. And it was only when I got into program, uh, so it was 16 years, I was into program a couple of years, 16 years after her suicide that I really started grieving it. Which in cases of, of extreme um, deaths is often the case that it takes a long time to sort of come around and come up. But when it happened, it happened in, in meetings and in the program because it was here that I felt safe. And I still notice Mother's Day was almost impossible, for, was impossible for years. And um, there's a movie out now and somebody said, oh, it's about a mother-daughter relationship. And my first thought was, mm. you know, maybe I'll see it, maybe I won't. It's just one of those things that I accept. And... Um, I have people to talk to about that. I have people to say, I don't know if I can do it. And, and they say, it's fine. It's fine. Nobody's judging you except you. And that was really helpful to me. I was thinking of the last couple of years. I, ch I also um, changed careers in this program, which was a big deal because I started all over again after I got into program because the career I was in was um, soul killing for me. And I changed careers and started at the very bottom again, and it was really hard, and I never regretted it for a second. I loved it. And it was only because of the program that I had the courage to try something new and to um, be willing to see what happened and be willing to trust. I... Um, had a sponsor who used to talk to me about meditation. And this goes back so far that she gave me cassette tapes to listen to. Mm -hmm. So it was the 90s, and um, I didn't listen to them. She gave me a book on meditation, didn't read it. She finally, on July um, 3rd of 2003, took me to a meditation workshop in New York, for, which was a day-long affair. And... For some odd reason, I was ready, and I learned how to meditate there, and I've meditated every day since that, since 2003. And my father died the following year, and it helped me through that. It has helped me through everything. And I would say, um, if I talk about the sort of, like, peaks of what do I really remember in terms of my life, I have the suicide of my mother, I have coming into program, I have med learning how to meditate. Coming into program, meaning working program, getting abstinent, having a sponsor, working the steps, making phone calls, doing service, and all of those things around program. And meditation is the next one. Because I still struggle with severe, deadly depression. However, I've learned that instead of waking up 10 feet under the floor, I meditate before I even get up, and it brings me up to table level, and it really has absolutely changed my life. And I know from all the research I've done that it changes, um, uh, it changes the brain. 
And I really believe that program changes the brain. It's unbelievable to me. But I was thinking about the years from, at around 10 years of abstinence, I thought I had it down. Um, and uh, at 12, 13 years of abstinence, I actually went to live in Paris for a year, which was probably, well, it was one of the top three years of my life for sure. I absolutely loved it, and I found a meeting there, an English meeting, um, on Sunday night, and it was fantastic to be able to travel, be somewhere I loved, be doing work I loved, and be able to be in program and be abstinent and, and, and have fellows. And I think, you know, when people talk about traveling and not wanting to be where they don't know anybody, I sort of have my secret smile of there's no place in the world. I don't have to be anywhere in the world and not know anybody because I also go to open AA meetings because they help me so much with hearing how the program is, is, is sort of done on the grandfather level. Um, I have a number of friends I've had for a very long time. I'm very loyal. And um, three years ago, this month actually, um, one of them died of very fast cancer. And I was devastated because I'd known her since I was 19. And we had been particularly close. Two minutes? Um, and, um, 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 we, and I, I was, the reason I'm talking about this is because I was, the program taught me to show up for her. So she was in Montreal and I was here and in New York and she had, to, it was, it was horrible. She had to have radiation and I said, do you want me to come up? Yes, please. So off I'd go to Montreal, slept on a stretcher in her hospital room, and go down to radiation with her. She was absolutely terrified, and because of her illness, she couldn't lie down because she thought she was drowning. So she sat up, they gave her pills, we laughed, she laughed, and then she was able to go through with it. And then I asked her again, you know, do you want me to come up in two weeks when you have it again? Yes, please. So off I went. And... Um, I think about that because in the old days I didn't know to ask people if I could be of service. Is there something I do you want me to come up? Do you want me to stay in your room? Who can I call? What can I do? And at, as we were talking, um, I said, because I didn't get to do it with my mother, I got to do it with my father, I said, How, it's really hard to talk to somebody when you haven't actually said, do you know you're dying? I know you're dying. You might have a month. You know, and I've learned in this program to kind of plow in there um, and um, trust God. And I said, how do you think about your life? And she, she, we shared a notebook because she couldn't speak. And so she was writing down her answers. And she said, I wanted to be a travel writer. I got to do it. I wanted to have a dog. I got to do it. I wanted to travel. I got to do it. I've gotten to do everything I ever wanted to do. And there was something about that the acceptance of what she had wanted to do that she had done. And I, unfortunately, she died so suddenly I wasn't able to be with her, but I showed up for her. And that, to me, is what this program has taught me. And um, two months later, I was hiking with my siblings in Arizona, and I slipped and went down a slope, and I heard my ankle snap twice. So I knew it was broken, and... Um, I was off it for four months, and I have screws and plates and all sorts of things in there. But because of the program, I did what they told me. 
that's one of the things we learn in here, that if you follow the program and you do what your sponsor says, and your sponsor, if she's anything like mine, will get way outside of the confines of actual program. And, um, you know, I do what's in, I've learned to do what's in front of, that wasn't my plan. I had plans to travel that year. It didn't happen. You know, and um, my step-granddaughter became a heroin addict and stole all my jewelry. Everything I had, along with other things, was gone and um, never to be recovered. And uh, it's, you know, it's okay. And it, it was a great lesson. I wouldn't say I, I'm glad it happened. I'm not there. But it was a great lesson in how important is it? How important is it? How important is anything? And um, I've learned that my health is really important. I lost another friend in the middle of a project we were doing. Same thing. Six weeks from diagnosis to death. And last September, we lost another friend in December, lost another friend in November. And I feel young. It's like, what is going on, God? And it's such a reminder of my life can't be about, my life is always about them. What are they doing? Where are they going? Where are they having fun? I want to have fun where they're having fun because I don't know how to have fun. And I'm no fun. And I've learned that, you know, life changes. And okay, I can... I'm here no matter what. And one of the questions asked this morning at the birthday party was, how do you get grounded when you don't feel grounded? My sponsor told me to go stand outside on the grass in my bare feet. And I don't know that the person thought it was a particularly pithy answer, but you know what? That's what I was taught to do. I have taken sponsees around the block in bare feet and made them walk on every piece of grass we crossed because I was taught that that's a way to ground yourself and it has something, to, literally has something to do with the earth and the axes and the, all that stuff because if I'm not grounded, I'm over there. So I've learned to, with my dirty feet to be here and to, to do my best to show up for what's going on. I stuffed down so many feelings I can't even tell you. I was so afraid of them. And again, I remember, thank God for all these people who come in front of us. I remember saying, I can't scream at my mother for killing herself, which I eventually did. But the feeling was, I can't scream at her because I'll never stop. And the therapist said, I'll bet you any amount of money you want that you will stop because it is exhausting to scream. And I can share with you that my limit is about five minutes. It's, you, there's no voice left. There's no energy left. And it was, it was that, you know, taking that step of trying something. You know, I'll never stop crying. I didn't cry for years after my mother died. I couldn't, I didn't, you know, I'll die if I cry. I didn't die. I cried. And I learned, I cried in this program all the time at first. To listening, I, as a matter of fact, when I first came into Overeaters Anonymous, there were Lassie reruns on television, and I used to cry at Lassie <laughs> because there were feelings in there. And I, you know, I hadn't been open enough to be able to connect with them. And that's something, again, I've learned to do in this program. And my sponsor also, my OA sponsor, sent me to Al-Anon because she said, you ate over people, places, and things. You did not just one day decide to pick up food. Stuff happened and triggered you. Okay. And, you know, my food got better once I went into Al-Anon. It really did. That's my experience. And um, I will say that uh, intimate relationships, in my case with men, um, have been uh, something I've had to work on. I 
there's five kids in my family. I'm one of five, and only one of us has children, and I think that has a lot to do with my mother's suicide. I did not want children. I couldn't imagine having to give something to a crying infant because on some level I didn't know it, but I didn't feel like I'd been fed, and I didn't have anything to give. And um, now, of course, I'd love to have kids, but it's a little late, and I do the best with the step-grandkids. But I... Um, had no intention of getting married. I had no intention. Here's what I had no intention of getting married. I had no intention of getting older. I had no intention of living in L.A. I had no intention of not working. I had no intention of having a niece who's a heroin addict along with the granddaughters. You know, lots of things I had no intention of doing. That, that here I am. I met somebody on a project I was working on. And I kept in touch with him, not because I was interested in him. I actually wasn't, but because I wanted to keep working. That's what you did in my business. You gave people your resumes. I was living with somebody. He was married. His wife died. My person went away. And we ended up being married uh, however many, 12 years ago. I can't say I love being married, but I show up for it. And um, I'd kind of rather be alone with my bowl of popcorn watching movies, frankly. I can say that in here. Um, that's, I was very happy doing that. It's really hard. And he's 30 years older, which is really hard in a lot of ways because I feel like I've aged already. It's like, oh, my God, I have to go through my own old age. Oh, my God. Oh, no. Not, I'm, I, I know everything there is to know about walkers and inclinators and slopes and cars and older friendly and not slippery and travel and altitudes and altitude pills and these pills and those pills. And um, because of all our friends, because I have tons of friends in their 70s and 80s and 90s. And, um, you know, it's like, okay, God, this must be happening for a reason. And I've learned in here as it says on page 449 of the third edition of the big book, that acceptance is the answer to all of my prayers today. I've learned to write letters to people. I've learned that um, somebody doesn't have to be alive for me to make amends to them. I can, I can go to the grave, which I have done, and make amends to them. I, um, I have ashes of the people I love. I kind of sometimes think I'll mix them all together, but I haven't done that yet. <laughs> um, but it means something to me. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not a capital H hoarder. I'm a little bit of a hoarder because things, things mean something to me. And um, I have a lot of mementos. I have pictures from the very first year of program when a bunch of us would get together on one of our anniversaries. And they mean a lot to me. And a lot of those, and if you're new, please connect with people. A lot of my friends are from 1987, from when I very first came in. Eight of us used to have dinner every Sunday night together at the same table at the same Chinese restaurant in New York every Sunday after the meeting. And that was where I learned to do fellowship. And you hear about that a lot in AA. And maybe, you know, LA is much more spread out. But... Um, those sorts of connections and regular connections to me are a really important part of working this program. I will say that the first time I went through these steps, I did it in a weekend with um, a woman named Sable, who's an old-time AA person. 
And um, in the olden days, in the big book, it talks about doing the steps fast. It doesn't talk about a step a year. It talks about doing them fast and getting on with your life and, t- and, and delivering the message. And I have done them again since then, but that was really helpful for me. And it really helped me let go of a lot of the self-hate, which was so much a part of my program. And um, I was also aware of being so grateful to the people that came ahead of me. Somebody came up to me this morning at the birthday party, and uh, we're going to connect, and she has been in the program since 1978. Um, And there are a number of people like that. I found a passage um, that I'd like to read from the end of Step 12 out of the OA 12 and 12, and it's on page 106. We who began working the steps in order to recover from compulsive eating now find that through them we have embarked on a lifelong journey of spiritual growth. From the isolation of food obsession, we have emerged into a new world. Walking hand in hand with our friends and our higher power, we are now exploring this world using the great spiritual principles embodied in the 12 steps as a map to guide our way. We gratefully follow in the footsteps of many others who have walked this way before us, and we're gratified to be making footprints of our own for others to follow. When I first came in, I would have thought that was namby-pamby, stupid, foo-foo, and now I think it's one of the more profound things I've read because for me it was in finding my insides and a connection to God and a connection to the world that's bigger than me. I also realize that there are a lot of things I cannot change, but I can work on myself. I I can have feelings about something. I don't have to act out on them. I was literally taught in these rooms that I better register to vote in the governmental sense and show up to vote. Because it doesn't matter who wins, it matters that you participate. And that's what I found about in this program. There's no winning. It's for me about participating. And when I came in, I used to think that if anybody uh, knew what was on my tombstone whenever I die... There's no way I would want to know because I would be so disappointed by what I hadn't done. That's how I came in. I don't want to know what a failure I'm going to be. I don't want to know what I'm not going to be able to accomplish. I don't want to know. However, over the years, I could walk out and get hit by a bus and I'm fine. Because of this program, my life as it is up to this point has been amazing. And all I can do is try and change myself and work my program and try and be loving, and um, it's work to work this program. We talk about working the program because it's work, and I'm so grateful that I've been shown away and continue to be shown away to do that work, and that there are people alive who have so much time and so much to share with me and us, and I will stop here and take questions if there's any time. Thank you for letting me be here. Into questions. Yeah. Are there any questions? Any newcomers? Thanks so much for your share. You mentioned that uh, you still had the abstinence you got when you came in. Can you talk about your abstinence? Sure. The question was about my abstinence. Um, my abstinence when I came in was uh, 
no throwing up, no spitting up, no giant binges, and um, that somebody knows what I'm eating, and two to three meals and two snacks a day. That's the abstinence I have. I can remember being down in the village in New York, and it was five o'clock or so, and before dinner, everybody was going to have pizza at one of the things. There's this, in New York, there's like John's Pizzas. There's a thousand pizzas that say they're all the original John's Pizzas. We went to one of them, and everybody had pizza, and I didn't have any because could I have had it and called it in and called it a snack? I suppose so. But the bigger issue was I didn't know what to call it. It was, it was kind of dinner to me, but it wasn't, we were going out for dinner later, and it wasn't lunch because I'd had lunch, and pizza didn't seem like a snack. So, you know, I, I remember being sort of perplexed about what to do with this thing. And, and again, after that, I spoke to my sponsor. You know, it's, turn, if you can turn it over, if you can say no to it, then it's usually okay to have it because it's the compulsion for something that gets me into trouble. Any other questions? They don't. Oh, there's one. Hi. Oh yes. Uh, the question is if I can speak about my conception of a higher power. Uh, when I came in, there was no God, or my mother wouldn't have killed herself. Wars wouldn't happen. All of those things. And over time. Um, it was probably eight months in when my sponsor, who I'd only had for two months then, I was going out of town on a business trip, and she said, I said, I don't know wh what the food's going to be, I don't know what's going to happen, I don't know what the schedule is, and she said, can you just trust each day that you're there that you will be taken care of? You know what food you're going to eat. Can you trust that you'll be taken care of? And my first response was, you know, like, okay, really? You know, that sounds pretty stupid to me. But, but because I'd already been in eight months, I said, okay. I went off on the trip. I practiced, oh, please God help me, which is still my favorite and most brief prayer. And I was able to stay abstinent. And it happened again. I had a meeting about a project that I really wanted. She said, can you trust that if you're meant to get it, you'll get it? Okay. Just, just this once, though. I'm not talking ongoing. Just like just today, I'll trust that uh, this that God will take care of me. And this went on with her probably a hundred different can you hundred different occasions. Can you trust that God will take care of you? Can you trust that you have a God that's there for you? For this instance, she learned to tack that on, and I said yes. And so over time, when I think of those, we made them in kindergarten, those paper chains where you made a circle and then you hooked in another circle and you hooked in another circle, that over time, with the thousands of times I've had to trust God, became my faith and my faith became my conception of a higher power. I say the third step prayer easily half a dozen, a dozen times a day and I start and end my meditation with it in the morning because I really believe every single word of it that I have to turn my will and my life over to God every day. It came in pieces, my conception. It wasn't the big white light affair. I didn't grow up with one. I didn't want one because I didn't believe in it. But I also have learned to believe that there's no downside to having a higher power in my life. There really isn't for me. And it, it helps me every single day because along with the teddy bears that I still sleep with, um, it helps me, because that's a form of God for me, it helps me believe that I'm not alone.
Thank you very much for letting me talk.